about forgiveness, uh, when we bring that word up and we talk about forgiveness, we need to understand that the scriptures basically has two kinds of forgiveness that it talks about um, in the scripture. There is a positional forgiveness. What does that mean? That means before the bar of God, we're declared not guilty, righteous, justified. Which means that at the point of our salvation, God forgives us for all of our sin, past, present, and future. All right. Now, why, why is that an important concept? It's an important concept because since God is omniscient, all right, God knows everything, that means what does God know about you? He and, knows you better than you know yourself. Right, and he knows not only the sins that you did, the sins you're doing, but what else? What you're going to do. All of them you'll ever do in your life. God knows all of that. And what has he done? Forgiven you for all of it. So the question then is, you know, as a Christian, you need to ask yourself, can I commit a sin that God can't forgive? And the answer is, no, because he already forgave me that because he knew I would do it anyways, but he's already forgiven me for that, so I can't out-sin him. That's, that's, yeah, this, that's not for a Christian. You know, pardonable sin is not for a believer. But a believer, as a believer, you can't commit a sin that God did not know that you were going to commit. Now, again, the mystery is God does not cause you to sin. God does not make you sin. But God knows what you're going to do. He knows that infallibly. And he forgave you anyways. That's, that's the amazing thing. When I came to know the Lord as a 13-year-old, God knew every sin I would ever commit in my entire life. And all of it was forgiven. Even though I had not yet done it, it was forgiven. And how is it forgiven? Again, we go back to how is it that God can forgive us on the basis of what? The blood of Christ. It's, it's his death on the cross that allows me to be forgiven for my sin. If Christ had not died, there is no forgiveness for my sin. But God knew all the sin I would commit. So positionally, when it, when it comes to my standing before God, I cannot get one sin up on God. Because no matter what I do, God knew I would do it. And positionally, he has forgiven me for that sin. I will never stand before the bar of God and God say, oops, I, I missed one on page 2683 of the Your Book of Life. I missed a sin and forgot to forgive that one. No. There isn't any sin that is not forgiven. So when we talk about forgiveness from the bar of God's perspective, from the eternal perspective, from um, standing before God, every sin I've ever committed has been forgiven. I will never stand in judgment for that. Yeah. So what about That's what we're going to get to next. Um, the problem with that position, just quickly, is that how many of us are going to die with a sin that we haven't asked forgiveness for? So we're all doomed. Really, we're all doomed. I mean, I've committed sins that I don't know that I committed. All right? And um, if I fall into that trap where, well, I've got to ask God to forgive me for every one of my sins, I don't know some of them I've committed. I'm sort of sunk. All of us are sunk. You know, all of us are sunk. And I know there are some persuasions that say, um, theological persuasions, uh, mainly like uh, the Nazarene, some of the Nazarene persuasions, some of the Wesleyan persuasions, not all of them, but some of them, that believe you can lose your salvation. We're going to talk about that whole topic later. But uh, their idea is that if you die with an un 
asked for you know, unforgiven sin, then you don't go to heaven. And I said, well, what about the guy who comes back from a revival meeting, you know, on fire for the Lord, and just before the train hits him, he says, oh, yeah, right, right. sorry, buddy. You know, if you just shut your mouth for five more seconds, you'd be in heaven, but, you know, you had to say that bad word, you're dead for, you're done for. That's silly, you know, right? That, God's forgiven me for all my sin. I can't get a sin up on him that he's not forgiven or that he not, did not know that I would commit, all right? Now, that's different than positional forgiveness, which we're going to get to. I mean, um, parental forgiveness, what we're going to get to. What's some good verses on this? So well, Psalm 103, 12. As far as the east is from the west, so he has removed our sins from us. Well, how far is that? They don't meet, right? No matter how far west you go, you can still go west, right? Um, no matter how far east you go, you can still go east, all right? So it's an infinite distance. It's... it's it's an infinite space between that. And then it says here, um, he even put them in the depths of the sea. Now, when, as a Jew, you wanted to say, I'm going to put something where nobody can get to it, you'd drop it in the depths of the sea. That was a common expression in those days. Because to them, the depths of the sea was something that nobody could ever go to. You were irretrievably lost. So it says that God has taken my sin and he's removed it as far from me as the east is from the west. He's put it in the depths of the sea, which means what? He doesn't remember it anymore. As far as the court of God is concerned, your sins are forgiven. If you can imagine yourself standing before the court of God, before the bar of God, and God said, okay, let's bring out the books of their sin. And he brought out my book or books, actually, some of them pretty big, and thumbed through it, all the pages would be blank because he's forgiven them all. It's, it's completely forgiven. And that's what we talk about here. Um, Romans 4, 6, and 8, we already talked about it, how David describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes rights to that work, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. God has forgiven David on what basis in Psalm 32? Because David's a nice guy? Because he gave a sacrifice? No, it's on God's character, right? David asked God to forgive him based not on David's deserving of the forgiveness, but on the character of God who is a forgiving and loving God and gracious. And that is really that one of the irritating things is when you, when you talk to some people, they have this idea, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament, he's just a really bad, mean, angry, tribal deity that slaughtered innocent people. You get that a lot in the liberal circles. You know, just this, this awful tribal deity, you know. And then the, and then the Jewish religion had to evolve and they like to use that word there, evolve into a God that's a little bit nicer. And then you've got the God of the New Testament. There's some even today that they see the God of the New Testament as completely different from the God of the Old Testament. Well, when you look at the God of the Old Testament, what was the one characteristic of God that's mentioned a lot of times? God is a God of compassion, forgiveness. Read through the minor prophets. Again and again, God is saying, I'm a God of compassion. I'm the one who forgives sins. The problem is, you need to admit it. But God forgives it. He's not a angry tribal deity that relishes in the death and slaughter of innocence. That's a total mischaracterization of God. A bad one at that. So when it comes to forgiveness, the component, there's one component of that that says God has forgiven me for all of my sin. But then there's another component of forgiveness and that's what we call parental forgiveness. We'll use that term there, parental. And what that means is as a believer when I sin, 
Am I going to rack up a sin that God has not forgiven me of? Well, the answer is no, I'm not. I can't do that. But what does that sin do to my relationship with God? Does it break it? Doesn't break it. What does it do? Damage it, strains it. It's just like your kid. If your kid does something really horrible, you don't break the relationship with that child. You don't say, well, that child's no longer mine. But what happens to the relationship between you and that child? Strained, it's damaged, it's out of fellowship. And that's when we talk about the parental forgiveness of God. When I sin now, I am not going to sin a sin that breaks my relationship with God in a sense of making me unsaved. But I do violate the relationship and because of that there is a, a, a lack of fellowship that I have with God. All right, and that's what we talk about here. That's the first John 1 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, who's the we we're talking about there? That's the believers. All right, if you as a believer ask God to forgive you for your sin, He'll forgive it gladly, openly, welcomely to restore that relationship. But in order to be forgiven, you need to recognize that you did it, right? I mean, it's not going to do any good to come to God and make excuses for it. That's one of the things that people do. Sometimes they say, well, you know, Lord, forgive me for my sin, but, you know, I had a bad hair day. You know, it's sort of a rough day. And they make all these excuses. Look, no excuses. God knows, God, if someone said God can forgive you for all your sin, but none of your excuses. You don't make excuses to God. When, what did David do? Did David blame Bathsheba for walking around on the top of the roof? Did he say, well, you know, Lord, you know, it wasn't my fault. I was just up there getting some fresh air, and there's this woman that pops up. What am I to do? No, what did he, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. He owned up to it. He didn't shift. He didn't do blame shift. That happened in the garden, right? Blame shift. Uh, Adam, well, the woman that you gave me, you know, if you wouldn't have given me this woman, I wouldn't have done this. And then a woman said, look, I was just walking through the garden and here's this snake. If it wasn't for the snake, I wouldn't have done this. Um, you don't blame shift. You just own up to it. You just say, I'm, I'm guilty. It's my fault. The loss of fellowship is not because God moved you did. Right. Because when he said, I will never leave you or forsake you, he never has. But when we feel like God's not there, it's because we left. Mm-hmm. There's a passage in James that says, uh, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And that says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What does that mean? It means as I deal with sin in my life, I draw closer to God, right? And it's not, like Sammy said, it's not that God moved. You moved. All right, God doesn't make errors. He doesn't sin. And God is there with open arms and he wants that relationship with you. He wants the vibrancy of that relationship to be there. But when we sin, we strain that relationship. We bring a cloud between us and God. And by asking God to forgive us, we remove that cloud and our relationship is restored. The fellowship is restored. Not that I'm in danger of hellfire if I don't, but I certainly lose my fellowship with God if I don't ask for him for forgiveness. Uh, Matthew 6.14, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive men not their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, again, 
there's this concept called homeolegomena. You've got to take the whole scripture, put it together. You can't take that one passage out and say, oh, see, it's saying if I don't forgive somebody, I don't get forgiven. Well, this is not, again, eternal forgiveness, because that's all already dealt with. What is Christ talking about there? If you want to enjoy your fellowship with God, what do you need to do? Forgive other people, right? You need to forgive other people. All right? Um, another passage on this that I like to look at is Matthew 18. This is a great passage when it talks about forgiveness. Um, Matthew 18. Let's start with verse 15. All right, to get the context. All right. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Now, this is probably one of the most often abused passages in the entire Bible when it comes to the church. What's it saying? Very clearly. If somebody offends you, how do you deal with it? Right, you don't tell other people about it, right? You don't hit the prayer hotline. You don't call your best friend and tell him about what so-and-so did to you. What do you do? You go to the person directly. You go to that person one-on-one. -on -one. And if that person listens, what have you done? You've gained a brother. All right. So if somebody does something against me, if somebody slanders me, if somebody does some evil against me, whatever form that takes... Right. How do I deal with that? I go and tell him what I want. Because what's the possibility? What's there a possibility of? Maybe he didn't know he offended me. Maybe he didn't know that. So the, the way you solve this, first of all, is that you go one-on-one -on -one and talk to that brother. All right? Now, if that brother listens, you've gained him. But what if he doesn't? What if he does not listen? What if he ignores you or just you know, poo-poo's it. Well, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Take two more people with you, one or two. Now, notice what it says here. It doesn't say the entire deacon board. It doesn't say everybody in your Sunday school group. Find one or two people that you're close with and say, look, you know, so-and-so did something wrong here. He, he sinned against me. He stole from me or whatever. Would you go with me to confront him? Because he won't listen to me. Take two or three. And um, if he refuse, refuses to listen to them, now what do you do? You can uh, take legal action. No. Take you, you tell it to the, to the church. You tell it to everybody in the church. This is, this is the way you biblically deal with sin. Now, when you talk about sinning against, it could be not only a sin against you, but what if you see somebody, um, what if you know a, a Christian friend of yours is committing adultery. Is that a sin against you? Sin against the body. I'm part of the body. It's a sin against me. I need to go one-on-one. -on -one. That's the way you start. If one-on-one -on -one doesn't work, you take two. If that doesn't work, you take the whole church. You don't start out with the whole church. Now, we start out with the whole church. That's how usually we deal with it, unfortunately. Yeah. That's how usually Christians deal with it. That's not how you deal with it. You know, in an open door, we have a church discipline policy, by the way, that embodies these things. You can get a copy if you want. And what we've basically done is we have the one-on-one, -on -one, the couple, 
And then one thing we do is we add a step. We say, well, you take it to the church board. You take it there first before you tell everybody in the church. The idea is you try to solve it at the lowest possible level. If that doesn't work, there is an escalation to the whole church. There is an escalation. And this is somebody who sinned against you. And, um, and then it says here, truly, I, and, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? You separate from them. Do you want to do that? No, but you may need to do that because of the sin. And um, then it says here, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. That's not a prayer meeting. What is that? What's context? Church discipline. It's church discipline. It has nothing to do with a prayer meeting. If there's one of you in a prayer meeting, God listens to you. You don't have to get two or three others before God shows up. So that's not what, it's not talking about a prayer meeting. It's talking about when it comes to church discipline and you follow the procedure, who is there with you in that procedure, in those proceedings? God is. God is. And the word binding and loosing is a common rabbinical term whereby... And everybody there understood what Christ was talking about, where if you come the, the, and you'd refuse to repent of your sin, the rabbi would say, your sins are bound to you. It has nothing to do with them binding it to you, but if you don't ask forgiveness, what are your sins? They're bound to you. If you ask forgiveness, what are your sins? They're loosed from you. That was a common rabbinical term that was used. And then Peter asked the question, well, okay, good. How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? How about seven times? Seven. Now that was, you know, he was thinking, well, that's a good number, right? Perfect number, God, all that. Surely I'll get some kudos from Jesus for doing that. He'll think that's pretty magnanimous, you know. And, and, and as soon as that brother sends against the eighth time, you can just let him have it, you know. Well, I'll tell you what. Think of all the sins you've committed to God. And if he just, if he had a forgiveness limit of seven, where would you be? <laughs> You'd burn through those pretty quick, right? We'd burn through those pretty fast. Yeah. I mean, we wouldn't get to year two before we've burned through all of our forgiveness slips. And then Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. And that's not say, okay, now you can do 490, and then 491 you go after them. Jesus is making a, a statement there. How many times do you forgive him? Infinite number of times. That is. And then it says here, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought him and owed him 10,000 talents. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. All right? um, in fact, what they, in, in the Roman system, they would tax the different provinces. And usually the entire tax for a year for a province was only, at the most, a few talents. This is an unpayable debt. This guy owed so much money, there would be no way possible in the world he would ever pay it back. Even, and, and that's in that, it's even more than that. And 10,000 is the largest number they had in the Greek language. That's like, he owed him a zillion talents. They didn't have a number larger than 10,000. So it was an infinite number. It was an infinite sum. It was, it was a sum so large that there was no possible way that this man in his lifetime 
or a hundred lifetimes or a thousand lifetimes would ever pay this debt off. It was unpayable. That's why in the book of Revelation it says thousands of thousands. Right. It's really ten thousand times ten thousand. Right, because they didn't have a million. Yeah, yet. they didn't have millions. They had zillions and zillions and a zillion of zillions and yeah. they, they didn't have that number. And, and uh, since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. Now, would that pay the debt? No. no, but it was something, right? It was better than nothing. I mean, it's common in those days. If you didn't pay your debt, you sold into slavery. That's the way it was. They didn't take this debt business lightly like we do today. And he said, um, So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Was that a valid request? No, because he couldn't pay it all, right? Be patient, I'll pay you everything. And the master said, there's no way you're going to pay all this. There's just no way. But what was the guy trying to do? He's trying to, uh, yeah, get, forgive me. And, and it says here, um, and out of pity for him, the master that, of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Wow. When that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants and owed him a hundred denarii, that's a hundred days wages. Pittance. When it comes to what he owed the master, it was a complete pittance. He seized him, began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have a patience with me and I will pay you. And that was a very doable thing. I'll pay you back. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. That's kind of tough. It's quite an ignorant I'll put the guy in prison until he pays me. Well, if he's in prison, how is he going to pay me? I never understood that. All right? Never understood that. But in those days, if you didn't pay your debt, they put you in a prison. All right? And, uh, pardon? You can't, unless somebody else pays it for you. Unless you're making money while you're in prison. Right. And when his fellow servants saw what he had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt, and you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servants, I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. What's, the, what's Christ trying to say here? What's, what's the 20,000 foot imagery? What have we been forgiven? Yeah. We have forgive, been forgiven what? An infinite debt. Infinite. And anything anybody would do against me when it compared to what I did against God is a pittance. It's nothing. It's a zero. It doesn't even register. And yet there are Christians today that refuse to forgive other people. You don't understand what he did to me. Irrelevant completely irrelevant you don't understand how he hurt me she hurt me irrelevant completely irrelevant what have you done to God God has forgiven you of everything what are you to do to others forgive them and I would suggest this the more you understand God's forgiveness the more apt you are to forgive other people and you show me someone I'll, I'll go on a limb here and say this you show me someone who has a bitter, unforgiving, resentful, spiteful spirit. I'll show you someone who has to look in the mirror and ask themselves, am I really a Christian? Do I really understand this forgiveness deal? Because if I did, I would be different. Don't you, you know, we do go through those feelings. We, we 
It's all right. It's, go, it's okay to go through the feelings. But where do you need to end up? And here's the thing. Forgiveness is a decision. It's not a feeling. We always have the, you know, it's a feeling. It's a feeling. I need to feel for it. No, it's a decision. I decide to forgive someone. By the, and when I decide to forgive them, I release them from the obligation or from the debt that they owe me. I release them from that. And this is the thing, you know, when, I, when you talk about bitterness and all that, when you don't forgive, you become bitter. And who does bitterness hurt? The other person or you? It poisons you. The other person could care less, really. It's a poison to your soul. Yeah. Oh yeah, it is. But it's just like it's like when you take that first step of surrendering that hurt and that you know the issue of forgiveness to Jesus, He does come and He does say, "Okay, Robin, look at it this way. You know, look at it this way." And like He did, because like I didn't want to be better. Mm -hmm. Because bitterness destroys you. It doesn't destroy that person. It destroys you personally. Yeah, you were gonna. Oh, the hurt, yeah, I don't know. You know, because these people, these family members keep doing Yeah, the hurt might go on. And, and by the way, being a forgiving person doesn't mean you become a doormat. All right? Um, you know, there are people that have... forgiving person with people. Continually beat me up. You don't, yeah, you don't, you don't go back. The problem with forgiveness, not the problem, but the issue with forgiveness is you have to release your right of recompense. You're right of getting even. You have to release that. That's, that's the idea of forgiveness. I release my right to be, to get my pound of flesh, to get revenge or whatever. I've got to release that. I may still feel hurt. I may still feel the pain. But I don't seek vengeance. And as I bring that pain to the Lord, right, as I bring that pain to God, God takes care of of that pain and makes me more Christ. Like someone said, you are most like God when you forgive. All right? I have to take that pain to him and let him deal with that. And like Robin says, as I do that, I begin to see a larger and broader picture. Instead of wanting, you know, to choke that person that's hurt me, I see, you know, boy, they're, they're in a bad state before God. And... Um, I'm concerned about their eternal soul, and you know if they don't, if they don't seek God's forgiveness, they're going to be a lot worse off than I, anything I would ever do to them. And you start gaining, a, like Robin said, you start getting a different perspective on this. It's not; it's still hard. There's no doubt about it. We're not no, saying I, this is easy. I've got to that point, and I can forgive these people. Mm-hmm. Stumbling block of trying to explain it to my son because he thinks I'm being a doormat because I 
No. You'd be a doormat if you continue to, to expose that. There's, just let me hold that thought because I'm going to get her and then I'll come back to that. Right. But it does not mean reconciliation. That's a difference. We don't yeah. Have, we don't have that's what I think that we're that person that person doesn't even have to know that you've forgiven them to forgive them. Yeah. That's between you and God. It's not between you and And it may be that that person doesn't even ask they your forgiveness. They don't have to know. It is something you do for yourself. Yeah. You no longer hold them on the hook, put them on God's hook. It does not mean reconciliation when it says, okay, now we'll go back to our relationship and we'll try to repair the damage. And give you a, you know, that's giving the person another chance mm -hmm. to have a relationship. And it may be, and it may be to, to think of it like this, I have to forgive the person positionally in the sense that I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to require a pound of flesh from them. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that I have the relationship restored. That's a difference there. And, and when it comes to the restoration of relationship, what is needed there, they need to acknowledge what they did. All right. If someone borrows a large sum of money from you and says, well, I'm not going to pay you back. By the way, can I borrow another thousand? I'm not going to give them another thousand dollars. All right. Now, I'm not going to hold them accountable. I'm not going to take them to court. I'm not going to sue them to get the money back. But I'm not going to loan them more money because that would not be a wise use of my resources. They need to acknowledge their guilt and restore that relationship. But when it comes to forgiveness, it, the idea of forgiveness is I got to release my right of getting even. I got to release that to God. Let God take care of that. And that takes effort. It takes energy. It takes emotional energy. And your feelings might not catch up for a long time. It may take a while for your feelings to catch up with that. But that doesn't mean you don't forgive. And the sorrow is, you got you know, you got to go back up to twenty thousand feet. Where's that person headed for? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like you have to learn. Well, they may ask for forgiveness the day before they die. And then, then you forgive them. Well, I mean, it's like uh, what you want them person. to see God's light shine through you. So when you learn, and, and it's hard for all of us, you know, to to take that step out of ourselves and say, okay, Lord, I want person to know more of you, I want to shine for you, and maybe they'll come to know you and not go to hell, you know, like when you get to that point in your thinking where you're like, you care more about their their eternity than you do about getting even, you know, and, and that's a hard place to get to. Well, it's harder still because I never see this person that gets me all every day. Yeah. I never see more on two different shifts. Mm -hmm. And so when I leave my place, it's way it should be and better. He leaves it to where I got to pick up And you know what? When it comes to what you've done against God, that's a big nothing. Well, you know, I've been dealing with this for three years. Fine. Well, God's been dealing with you for a lot longer. Right? I mean, it's all perspective. You know, seriously, it is all perspective. I have a person in my own family that um, vicious. I mean, vicious to the point of just being vicious. And... Uh, you know, see, well, you know, if you were a Christian, you would just forgive me and forget about it. You know, I said, well, now, wait a minute, you know, I have forgiven you. You know, I don't stay up at night worrying about how am I going to get back, you know, all that. 
But you know what? You violated a relationship here. And until you see that, until you want to restore it, as much as I would love to restore a relationship with you, I can't. I can't. I'd love to. I, you know, you come up to me, you say you're sorry, you truly repent, you truly want my forgiveness and, and restore the relationship. You got it. But until you do that, our relationship is at a standstill. There is a, there is a break in it. And I'm not being mean, angry, resentful, hard-nosed or anything like that. It's just that that's what God does to us. God's, God the Father, when we sin as believers, God says, look, I want the relationship. I want to enjoy the relationship with you. But until you, for, you know, see that you've sinned and ask forgiveness, I, I, I can't. I want to, but I can't. Now, God doesn't hold me guilty eternally for that. He's forgiven me for that. But it does violate the relationship. It's us. Therefore, because we moved, it's up to us to move back. Yeah, and, and it's up to the person who heard us. Proverbs twenty-eight fifteen: Whoever covers his sin shall not prosper, but he that confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. It's easy to get God's forgiveness. Just own up to what you've done, and God is there with open arms, ready to forgive. And we need to model that, and that's what Robin was talking about. We need to model that in our own lives to other people. Because they're going to get an idea of what God is like by the way we are. If we're a Christian and we're angry, resentful, bitter, holding grudges, that doesn't speak too well of who God is, does it? I have a friend of mine who um, grew up with in church, you know, went to church, knew him very well. Um, Terry knows him really well because we went to the same church. He's bitter. One of the most bitter people on the planet that I know of. And uh, he made a profession of Christ, but you know what? I believe today if he died, he'd go right to hell. Because I see no forgiving spirit in him at all, at any, at any level. Hold grudges, angry, resentful. I want to get back, get my vengeance, get my two pounds of flesh. Look, that is not the characterization of a Christian. And that's what God is talking about here in Matthew 18. And that's what it means here in Matthew 16. How do you know you're forgiven? You forgive other people. You think it's all right to buy force to, to get somebody to forgive? To buy what? If you hold a gun to somebody's head, either you forgive by or you're, you're done with. I mean, is that... Is that... That's not forgiveness. You've got to let God work on their heart. <laughs> not, not, not so harshly, but I mean, uh, you can put them in a situation such that, uh, you know, that, that could bring them to that crossroads. Mm. And it doesn't have to be a gun to the head. No. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, because like I, I know it happens with Christians too, you know, and that's even harder sometimes to deal with the non-Christians. But um, one thing I, I, I learned and I, I just remember this is that you have to forgive someone and you have to have the expectation that you may never get the forgiveness back from them. Right. They may never come and say, you know, I know you're my Christian sister or brother, and I'm so sorry. Or, you know, you have made a really good point, and, you know, thank you for making me see that. I mean, like you say, people hold bitterness because they have... And they might die bitter. Right, you know. So it's like, I think sometimes when we talk about forgiveness, we want to understand it, but then we think, okay, I understand it, so now I can go and expect them to forgive. Even, maybe it'll take a day or three weeks or three years, but... I'm going to get my forgiveness. And you know what? I've, I've, I've known people in Christian circles and non-Christian circles that I've never got forgiveness, but I had to have peace with it because if you don't have peace with forgiving them and letting it go, 
and knowing you may never get the forgiveness, that's got to be enough. Yeah. So and forgiveness is for ourselves. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You, oh, you got it now. I'm joking. But no, you're right. And Peter says seven Christ says seventy times seven. That's hard, isn't it? It's very hard. But that that is part of Christian maturity. That is part of spiritual maturity. Look at all the crap that Paul went through, but yet he didn't hold grudges against anybody. What did he do? Christ says what? Pray for your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you and say all things against you for my name's sake. Pray for them. That's part of being a, that's part of being a kingdom citizen. Because what did Christ do to the people that nailed him on a cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's tough. Life's tough. You got it. That, that, that is tough. No. Reconciliation comes in. Right. That's where that but I don't expect retaliation. I'm not going to retaliate. I'm not going to no. go after the person. I've released my right of vengeance. Okay. Releasing. Always releasing that. Um, but that doesn't mean I allow myself to be... You know, if every time he sees me, he pops me in the nose, I'm going to avoid him. Yeah. You know? I'm, just not, I'm not going to expose myself to that. Yeah, and they're, and yeah. I don't think you always have the opportunity to approach that person. No, you don't. And, and sometimes you've got to forgive. Yeah. Or what do you do about somebody that's hurt you deeply and they're dead? Boy, I tell you what, if you don't forgive them, you've had a long, you're going to have a long road home. It could be anything. But, and, and again, the way, the, what you have to do is you have to, you have to start trying to see things from God's perspective and what he has forgiven us of. And when you start really latching on in our own fallen way, we're not going to get it all. But when you really start comprehending what you've done to God and what he has forgiven you of, when you look at the sins that people do against you, it doesn't even register. You realize from the grand eternal scheme of things, the sin, that's what David did. The sin I get, did against Uriah by having him murdered is zero compared to what I've done against God. doesn't excuse me for murdering Uriah. I'm not, that's not what I'm doing. But when compared to my sin against God, any sin I do against anybody or they do against me is a nothing. And that's why, that's why you've got to bring yourself back. That's what Robin was talking about. You've got to bring yourself back to this eternal perspective. That person, you know, they sinned against me, but, you know, they sinned against God. That's worse. That's worse. They lied and stole from me, but, you know, that's that, that lying and stealing that they did, that sin, is much more serious because they, when they did it against me, they did it against God. Well, that's worse. And 
Lord, I want you to forgive them and pray for their forgiveness. Pray that God would open their hearts. And what do you got to do? You got to go back up to the guy. I'm not saying this is easy. Yeah. Yeah. It's not easy. It's hard. But, but one of the things here is when you look at our salvation, what we have been forgiven of, and you really start pondering that, you meditate on it, you start getting a handle on that, you start getting your head around that, you're awed at what God has done. And when you understand that, the sins that other people do against you don't rate nearly what, it, what we've done against the Lord. And, and it helps us to learn to forgive others. That's, God tell, it's a command. Forgive other people. That's a command. Forgive. And what's part of the disciples' prayer? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And if we don't do that, look, you've got to forgive. You show me a person who is an unforgiving person, bitter spirit, angry, resentful. I'll show you someone again that has to look in the mirror and say, are you really born again? Do you really get this forgiveness thing? Because if you did, you wouldn't be acting this way. Yeah. Let's go on to regeneration. Yeah, I've had practice with that. I mean, it's easy if it's just well, somebody at church because you say, well, you know what, I just won't be around you anymore. It's just that I, I've known in my life, I've tried to engender in my life a forgiving spirit. No bitterness. That doesn't mean that I have reconciled relationships with everybody. I wish I did. But I'm not going to treat people like dirt because of something they did to me 25 years ago that I keep reliving and rehashing. You can't do that. It's, it's bad for you. It's bad for your spiritual health. Right. And you can't avoid that. But, like she pointed out with her kids, it's relatives or someone that you're, that you're kind of compelled to have a relationship with and it just, just keeps on and on. It's, it's very difficult. It is. It is. I'm not, the seven part is easy, but it's 70 times seven. That's the tougher part. Or beyond that. that it's, that's the tougher part. You know. Let's look at regeneration here. We'll get at least two words. Regeneration. It's the process whereby God, through a second birth, imparts to the believing sinner a new nature. You're regenerated. You're made alive. That's the idea. You're made alive. Now, as I was trying to think about how to talk about this, um, one of the great debates that come up, that comes up at this point is uh, from the Latin word ordo salutis, which means the order of salvation. And what it means, and what they mean by that, is there are different theological persuasions that say, okay, are you regenerated and then you believe? Or do you believe and then you're regenerated? All right, what do we, what do we mean by that? Um, when it comes to the salvation event, and all of us had that salvation event, I hope all of us are born again, We've had that salvation event. From God's perspective, does God regenerate me, make me new, make me a new creation, 
give me new life and then the first thing I do is believe or does God or do I believe and then God gives me new life? Now if you want to know the answer to that, I don't know. Well, we believe because we right. And, and, and yeah, that's the not, okay? It's almost like I believe to be regenerated so that I can believe. That doesn't make sense. That's sort of like one of those Mobius strips, you know, or one of those Escher drawings where you're constantly going up the stairs. I don't know. You got to start somewhere. I don't know. I, I, honest, I, I don't know. I am, I am probably... Per, if I had to pick one, I would say, no, God regenerates, then I believe. But there are others just as equally who say, no, you believe, then you're regenerated. I don't know. I do know, however, and this is how I want to approach this whole topic here, regeneration, order of salvation, is instead of trying to sit, sift through for the next umpteen weeks and talk about the Wesleyan versus the Arminian versus the Calvinistic versus the Samian view, um, <laughs> instead of going down that path, all right, yeah, instead of going down that, I want to look at it differently. And what I want to look at is when a person is born again, when they are saved, what do you see there? What are some of the things that pop out? Instead of trying to figure out what order do the things appear in, what's the package deal? And the package deal is within that salvation event, you have confession. We talked about that. You confess your sin. You repent. You're regenerated. You're forgiven. You're you're positionally justified before God. You're positionally sanctified, made holy. All of those components are part of that salvation event. And I don't think it's, it's very um, wise to try and pick out which came first, the chicken or the egg, or the chicken or the egg, or the chicken or the egg. We could argue about that. There are various positions on that, but I don't want to go there with, with our discussion because we'll be another 25 weeks trying to sort this out. Rather, let's understand this. When a person is born again, what do you see? You see faith, right? They believe. You see repentance. You see confession. You see regeneration. From God's perspective, they are justified. They are positionally sanctified. What does that mean? They are made holy. They're set apart to God. All of those are part of that package deal. And you can't pick one out and, and say, well, that person was saved, but they, I don't see any repentance. Well, you better question that. Or that person is saved, but I certainly don't see any regeneration. I don't see any change of life. You better worry about that. All right? Because a salvation event is going to produce regeneration, which is a new life. You're different. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. He's not the same old, same old. You're different. You're, you're different. Yeah. I think in, in um, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but I think in that you have to be very careful to not judge because everybody's on this journey at different points. They will show different levels of regeneration, different levels of regeneration. But there's something. Yeah. But, well, there's something, yes. Yeah, there's something. The, and, and the point is that in the end, God is the only one who truly knows whether they... You're right. Them. You're right. Okay. I just don't want us to become, oh, I don't see enough regeneration in it, or I don't see no. It's not our job to say you're in, you're not, you're in, you're not, you're in, you're not. That's not the point. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about when the Bible says that a person comes to know Christ in a true saving way. When your relationship with God is restored, there's going to be evidences of that in your life. Where there's no evidence, you need to go back and ask yourself, was that the real thing? 
That's all we're saying. And we all need to do that. That's a self thing that we do. My difficulty is I've seen people that say, well, I came to know the Lord at, what, 10 or 11 years old, and I look at their life, they're 50 now, they have no interest in spiritual things, they don't go to church, they hate God's people, they are bitter, angry, resentful people, they live in sin, they don't have any apparent um, uh, um, I can't even remember the word now. They don't feel bad about their sin. There's, no, there's, there's none of that. There's no remorse. There's nothing. And it's like, how can they be a Christian? Okay, so they went forward and signed a card and prayed the prayer. That doesn't mean anything. What, and the scripture says this. The mark of a saved life is a transformed life. That's the mark. How do you know you're a Christian? Because when you look at your life, you see a change. You see an alteration in your life. If you see someone has no conviction, that's what I was trying to think of, there's no conviction of sin, no desire for spiritual things, no spiritual interest at all, they can tell me they're a Christian to their blue in the face and I'm going to pull a James 2 on them. Show me your faith without your works. I don't see it. It's not there. I, I, I can't tell that. And regeneration, if a person is truly regenerated, there is a change in your life. You're different. You're not perfect. We all aren't there. I mean, good night, you know. And as I just point out, we're all on the road at a different spot along the way. But there is a difference. There's a change in our life. And when you have a true salvation event in a person's life and there's truly a, a change from death to life, regeneration, they are a new creation in Christ. They are different. They're not the same old, same old. They're different. And that's what regeneration is. Is talking about and one of the one of the things we've done today I think to a great disservice in Christianity is we've we've disconnected a holy life from regenerate from salvation and we somehow can talk people into thinking that well as long as you prayed the prayer you're in regardless of how you live the Bible doesn't understand that Paul didn't Paul would not understand that statement it'd be it would be incomprehensible to him you're telling me you can be a believer and not have any change in life you tell me you can go from death to life and, and have no, no difference? That doesn't make any sense. Why did Christ save you? So that you could just continue to sin and it doesn't matter? He Pray saved you to be holy. Praying a prayer, prayer is just verbalizing words. It has nothing to do with the heart. Yeah, I, I told somebody, I can, get anybody, I can get anybody in Elyria to pray the sinner's prayer. I can do that. I'll get out of 45, I'll put it to their head and say, you pray this prayer or you're dead. I can get anybody to do that. Yeah. Violent here, you know. I can get, you can get anybody to do that. That doesn't mean they're born again. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. He's different. There's a different direction to your life. And, it, it, you know, there are different stages of that different direction, but there is a different direction. Well, your, your life is a venue of many different ways that we have to mature. Yeah. You're on the path, though. You're on the narrow way. Yeah. Yeah. Like we're on the journey with all the different levels, but there's none of you who are lukewarm. Well, in the in the Revelation passage, I think he's talking to Laodicea. Yeah. Laodicea is an apostate. I don't think they are Christians. Okay. They're not even a Christian. And we're going to talk about a little bit of that in the sanctification, because because there are some that say, well, you can be a carnal Christian. Well, just, you know, some say, well, and I remember the old uh, Campus Crusade. You know, where you've got the spiritual Christian, the carnal Christian, and then the unbeliever. 
All right. Well, the Bible does not have a concept of a carnal Christian, if you mean by that someone who's permanently in the state of carnality. The Bible does not understand that. As a Christian, can you act carnally in a, in a situation? Sure you can, right? You can act carnally. When that lady pulls out in front of me and I flip her off and say bad words, I'm acting carnally. All right? I don't do that. But I act carnally when I do that, if I were to do that. All right? Donna can hear me now. I can't do that anymore. All right? Yeah. I think it. So at, at any point in time, as a Christian, we can act in a carnal way, but that's not a state of life. That's the problem. There are people that say, well, you know, I know Joe, and he came to know the Lord, you know, 35 years ago, and I know he doesn't go to church, and he doesn't read his Bible, he has no interest in spiritual things. He's just a carnal Christian. No, he's probably not a Christian. Because if you're telling me a person can live in carnality for 35 years and it doesn't bother them, what does that tell you about their relationship with God? They probably don't have one, because what is God going to do? He's going to chasten them. If they're truly born again, God's going to go after them. So no, I don't believe in the state of carnality. All right? I believe you can act carnally, and I'm just using what the scripture talks about. Paul does not give you the concept that you can be a carnal Christian in the sense of that is your continued state forever. You may be, there may be levels of immaturity, but there's no continued state while well, you're just a carnal Christian, and then there's the spiritual Christians. No, you're, you're, it's like you're pregnant, you're maybe you're, you're half pregnant or you're not pregnant. There's no half pregnant. You are or you aren't. You're born again or you're not. You're not in the middle. All right? Mm -hmm. And they're saying, like, in the old covenant, it was the law, and people could say, I can't do it, I can't, I can't, I can't. But in the new covenant, because it's all through Jesus Christ, it becomes, I won't. Mm -hmm. It's a choice now. Mm -hmm. Because we've been equipped through the new covenant. To be right. Yeah, and it's not that we don't have struggles. We understand that we all have struggles, right? We all struggle with sin. And as a believer, you know, you may struggle with, we're going to struggle with sin all of our life to different degrees. But notice what it is. It's a struggle now. We don't want to sin, but we find ourselves being drawn into it. You show me someone who doesn't care whether they sin, who has no concern about it, they're probably not regenerate. They're probably not a new creation and, and that's what the Bible is talking about when, it's, when it says, how do you know that you are a believer? You have a change in your life. You used to love sin, now you hate it. You may still do it. Romans 6, Romans 7, the things I don't want to do, I do. But Paul says, I hate to do them. I don't want to do them. There is a struggle. Where there is no struggle, there is no regeneration. Does the sinner struggle with their sin? No. no. I mean, they may struggle with the consequences and stuff like that, but there's no real struggle. For us, there's a struggle. I fight it every day. Which is why a lot of people misuse that verse as you hold all things are coming to me from the creature. They throw that at somebody that is a brand new Christian coming out of who knows what as far as patterns of behavior, not acknowledging the fact that it is indeed 
In the, in the scripture, and we're going to talk about this in the security of salvation and, and the assurance, the mark in the scripture of someone who's truly born again is that you see a pattern of decreasing sin in their life over time. And that is a work of the Holy Spirit. That is not you. And I think you do people a disservice when you try to talk them into the fact of them being a Christian. Well, you know, I remember when you went forward, of course you're a Christian. I was there when you prayed the prayer. Meaningless. Because the scripture says, how do I know, and, and we'll talk about this in 2 Peter chapter 1. How do I know I'm, I'm born again? Well, I add to my faith virtu you know, these virtues. Add your faith, you know, charity, charity, patience, patience, you know, all that stuff. You add to it because that is the mark of true regeneration. What did Paul say? Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove yourselves. Um, in Timothy, it says, how does... How, the, the mark of God stands sure. Well, number one, God knows those who are his, right? Does God know who's really born again? Yes. Of course he does. But how do you know you're born again? Well, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That's our spot. Does that mean all the time you depart from iniquity? Does that mean you don't struggle? No. But what do you do? You have a struggle. And as you look back, hopefully you're more holy today than you were five years ago than you were 10 years ago. And that's my issue, Alan. And I mean, I understand everyone at different levels. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I mean, I struggle because I, cause I can get on my rant stuff. You should be changed, you know, blah, blah, But what I'm saying is, when I see a, 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 a quote-unquote Christian for five years of church, and they're not really growing, or they're just stuck in a pit for like a long time, I'm like, what's the deal? You know what I'm saying? Because and that's what Paul, and you'd be with Paul, because if, if Paul was standing next to you, say, you know, Robin, I don't know what the deal is with that guy. Right. I mean, he'd be saying the same thing, and, and the challenge to that person, maybe on a personal level, is say, you know, do you really, do you really get what salvation is? Do you, do you really understand what it means to be born again? Because that's what the problem was in Hebrews, right? They had all these people in the Hebrews church that had not been born again. They were hanging around. But they had not yet gone all the way to salvation. You need to challenge people on that. Right. And I can't say, well, you're not saved. I, I can never do that. But what I can do is say, you know, I'm really concerned that, you know, I'm looking at your life and I, I don't see any real holy aspirations there. I don't see you really hating sin. Now, do you really understand what salvation is? And challenge them on that level, you know, and not just say, oh, I know you're a Christian because you've been going to church for five years. Big deal. I think Billy Sunday said going to church to be a Christian is no different than being in a garage thinking you're a car. You know, just because you're in a garage doesn't make you a car. Going to church just doesn't make you a Christian. I think that's. I think he's the one that said that. Don't let them intimidate you. Right, exactly. All right? right? Don't let them... I had a friend of mine, seriously, I had a friend of mine who, who I confronted, Matthew 18, living in sin. Right. I confronted him, and his response to me says, Well, Alan, you need to understand, you know, God's working on me, and he's not done with me yet. Well, I'll tell you what, God's been working now for 25 years, and nothing much has changed. <laughs> All right? 
And I'm not going to let him intimidate me and say, well, you just understand, you know, you're being arrogant thinking that, you know, I need to be here. I don't even go there. You know, I'm just saying, look, the Bible says if you're in Christ, you're different. And there's an upward progression. If there's no upward progression, you need to go back and ask yourself, did I ever get started on the road in the first place? And don't let anybody intimidate you in that. Yeah. All right, we're out of time. All right. Father, thank you for this day that you've given to us and for the study that we've had. And I pray that you bring us back safely next week to your word. Thank you for forgiving us for our sin and making us new creations in Christ and giving us uh, a desire to be holy and godly and saving us, Father. And I pray that we would just ponder that thought and what it means. In Christ's name, amen.